The Metropolitan Opera is a musical and cultural institution and has been responsible for introducing many new operas to New York City in its long history. But do you know the very first opera ever performed at the Met in 1883? Here's another hint. It's a French work based on a very famous German story, but when it premiered at the Met, it was actually sung in Italian. All this and more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Give up? That opera is none other than Charles Gounod's most popular work, Faust. This classic tale of a man who makes an ill-advised deal with the devil has inspired many operas over the years, including Busoni's Dr. Faust, Bolito's Mephistophele, and Lutz's Faust and Marguerite. But no operatic version of this legend has come close to the instant success and enduring popularity of Gounod's version. I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and today we have a pre-performance lecture from our Talking About Opera archives, featuring lecturer and writer Father Owen Lee, giving us an in-depth history and analysis of the music and creative inspiration behind this legendary work. Once upon a time in Germany, a man named Faust sold his soul to the devil. He wanted to experience everything that was possible in life, and the devil guaranteed that he could provide him with endless adventures. And Faust did have seemingly endless adventures, but eventually the time came when he had to pay up, and he forfeited his very soul. That's a story that has captured the imagination of the world. It was the source of one of the great works of literature, Faust, the vast two-part tragicomic drama in verse penned over 60 years from 1771 to 1831 by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and rightly regarded as the centerpiece of German literature. But the old story has also been told a hundred other times, in plays, poems, novels, paintings, and films. In music alone, it has served Berlioz, Boito, and Busoni, Schubert, Schumann, and Spohr, Liszt, Wagner, and Mahler, and among many others, Charles-François Gounod. The Faust, or as they say in France, Le Faust of Charles Gounod, is an overwhelmingly tuneful opera, that in the days of our grandparents and great-grandparents was easily the most famous and popular of all musical works for the stage. A 1920s edition of the Victor Book of the Opera stated flatly that Faust was, quote, sung throughout the world more than any five other operas combined. And for the better part of a century, millions of people came to know the Faust legend not through Goethe's German drama, but through the French opera Gounod fashioned out of it, despite the insistence of critics that Gounod's work was inferior to, that it was in fact a bourgeois blasphemy against Goethe. Ought we to compare the few hours' traffic on Gounod's operatic stage with the thousands on thousands of verses of Goethe's virtually unstageable play? Not if we want really to appreciate what Gounod has wrought but I do want at least to talk about them both. And I'll start with Goethe. His Faust begins with a prologue in the theater, where he, the playwright, confronts his producer and his star actor and justifies to them the drama to follow. Goethe clearly thought the prologue necessary. 
For the drama to follow was to break virtually every rule critics, ancient and modern, had laid down for dramaturgy. It would blend the tragic with the comic. It would swerve and veer from high style to low. It would make radical changes in the myth it told. And, daringly, it would conflate that myth with the author's own life. Then Goethe added a second prologue, In Heaven. We see the Lord enthroned. Primal day is saluted by three archangels. All above is vastness, clarity, and perfection, while the earth spinning far below is to the archangels a largely unintelligible, imperfect place where storms and tides rage majestically but senselessly. Suddenly a fallen angel appears, one Mephistopheles, the rogue among devils. With obsequious deference, he points out to the Lord that the race that lives on earth would be nothing but for one gift it has been granted, that glimmer of heaven's light it calls reason. Do you know my servant Faust? asks the Lord, ready to defend his earthlings. The scene is, of course, a version of the beginning of the book of Job. The doctor, asks the devil, implying that Faust is a fool. Oh, he searches for the stars of heaven and the pleasures of earth, and nothing satisfies him. The Lord calmly responds with the remark that begins Goethe's reversal of the whole Faust tradition. Though now Faust serves me in confusion, I shall lead him soon to clear light. We are thus left in no suspense about the outcome of Goethe's play. The Lord will save Faust, no matter how much he sins, for Faust is a man whose nature it is to keep striving onwards, as the Lord, the creative force in the world, wishes him to do. The devil makes a wager. If the Lord will allow him free reign with Faust, he will one day satisfy the ever-striving man. He plans, we later discover, to provide Faust with a moment so perfect he will want to stay in it forever. He will capture him with delight and so divert him from the creative path the Lord has set for him. The Lord gives his consent to the arrangement. He knows that no moment Mephisto can conjure up will ever halt the onward striving of the man he has created to do his work in the world. Mephisto seems to know that, too, that he is only the destructive counterforce to a creative force that grows stronger by any opposition he presents to it, that his every attempt to annihilate the world will only strengthen and further the evolutionary design the Lord has for it. Gounod and his boulevard librettists, Jules Barbier and Michel Carré, decided rather wisely, I think, to have none of this but it should be said that Gounod was, in one important way, the right man to set Faust to music. Goethe's hero is, famously, a man in whom two souls dwell. He is torn between the good that he strives to do and the evil that inevitably results from his striving. Gounod was similarly divided. He was a devoutly religious man drawn irrevocably towards sensuality and his two sides are sounded in the opera's prelude. We hear a fugal, quasi-religious theme that suggests Faust's relentless search for meaning. And then a rising scale on the harp leads us to a typically Gounod-esque melody of surpassing sweetness, at once sentimental and sensuous. Our conductor is André Clitens.
When the melody has ceased and the curtain rises, we see Faust, an old man, alone in his study, in despair that his intellectual labors have come to nothing. He is about to raise a cup of poison to his lips, but his hand is stayed when he hears the voices of young girls hymning the beauty of nature and the song of young men following the lark to their fields. Blessed be God, they sing. At that, Faust rebelliously decides on a course better than drinking the poison. God, he exclaims in revulsion, and he vehemently curses everything good on God's earth, happiness, hope, science, and faith, and calls on Satan to come to him. Me voici, a bass voice intones, and Mephistopheles appears, a fine figure in scarlet tights, with cloak and sword, and a feather in his cap, and with elegantly condescending manners. In both Goethe and Gounod, Mephistopheles only gradually reveals his sinister and destructive side. There is something that our operatic Faust has not cursed, and he asks for it now, not gold or glory or power, but youth, and the passionate love that attends it. Mephistopheles says that it can be his for the simple exchange of his soul. And, when Faust hesitates, he conjures up a vision of a lovely and innocent young girl at her spinning wheel, and we hear, under the voices, some of the love music that will follow in another half hour. Faust, Nikolai Geda in our recording, signs the compact. Mephisto, Boris Kristoff, a devil in the tradition of Shaliapin, gives him a strangely vaporous drink. And Faust is transformed into a handsome and highly sexed youth eager to set off with his personal devil in search of maitresse and caresse. The Gallic exuberance and relative simplicity of that has offended Germans, for there Goethe spreads the compact with the devil over three episodes, and there Faust also conjures up in a remarkable scene a mysterious earth spirit that is still a figure of controversy among scholars. Gounod, in a word, is not a profound thinker, but he is unquestionably a melodist, with a good sense of what is effective on the stage. His next scene, a virtual torrent of melody, takes place at a German fair, a beer-drinking kermesse, replete with burghers and soldiers, matrons and maids, all of them individualized in roisterous, almost contrapuntal music.
The soldiers in the crowd are preparing to leave for the wars, and among them is Valentin, who fears what might happen in his absence to his orphan sister, Marguerite. He asks the youth, Siabelle, to care for her till he returns, and launches into his big aria, Avant de quitter ses lieux. This might be the time to say that Gounod's opera began its existence as an opera comique, a small scaled opera with spoken dialogue. It was hardly an initial success in that form, but as the popularity of its melodies began to spread, the spoken dialogue was replaced by any number of musical additions. So, at the London premiere, given in English, the Valentin, Charles Santley, asked for an aria at this point. Otherwise, he would hardly have anything but a trio and a death scene to sing. He suggested that Gounod adapt for him that melody of surpassing sweetness in the prelude. Gounod, not wanting the devil to have all the good tunes, fitted the melody from the prelude to an English text, added a soldierly contrasting section and a prayerful finish, and as a result, generations of baritones have gloried in the aria Even Bravest Heart May Swell or Avant de Quitter Ses Lieux. Here is our Valentin, Jean Bortel. The crowd at the fair is then startled by the appearance of an intimidating figure in red who offers to sing a song about the adoration of the golden calf and all but compels them to join in the chorus. The figure in red then magically makes wine spurt from a cask surmounted by an image of Bacchus and predicts that every flower that young Siabelle touches will wither and that Valentin will soon meet his death. When this unknown figure bandies about the name of Marguerite, Valentin draws his sword. The figure traces a circle in the air around himself and Valentin's sword shatters in an attempt to penetrate it. The crowd realizes that the figure in red is satanic. The soldiers, led by Valentin, raise their sword hilts to form a legion of crosses, and we hear the very Gounod-esque chorale of the swords. Mephistopheles, for of course the figure in red is he, cowers away, but the devil is not down for long. He soon returns to put the townsfolk under a spell. 
he sets them all helplessly spinning to a magical waltz. The waltz wasn't to come along for several centuries, but such things matter little to devils, and this waltz was to become, in the decades when every home had a piano and children to play on it, the most familiar number in the score. Then, amid the swirl, it is as if everything stops and the young Faust sees the girl who appeared in his vision passing amid the bedeviled crowd on her way home from church. He has heard her name, Marguerite, but he dare not use it yet. Will you permit me, ma belle demoiselle, he gallantly says, to offer my arm and escort you on your way? No, monsieur, she replies. I'm not a demoiselle or belle, and I have no need of your hand. It's a charming exchange, straight out of Goethe, and Gounod, setting it as simply as he can, following with his melody the inflections of the French language, ends with a single stroke the grand opera pretensions of Olivy and Meyerbeer and paves the way for the young Bizet and Massenet, for Lalo and Fauret. It's the moment when a new era of French opera, smaller scaled and understated, was born. Our Marguerite is Victoria de Los Angeles. Here is the famous meeting of Marguerite and Faust. Faust, rebuffed though he is, sings an ecstatic Je t'aime, I love you, that takes him up to a high B. That threatens to bring down the house, except that in another moment, Faust is surrounded by the whirling chorus and they are bedeviled again into waltzing that infectious waltz. I'd like now to talk a little about what the Faust legend was before Gounod's opera and before Goethe's drama. A certain Johannes Faustus, that is to say, Lucky John, actually lived in 16th century Germany. He seems to have been little more than a traveling mountebank, but he had an effect on a gullible public that was taken seriously by such religious leaders as Luther and Melanchthon. And after his death, the legend developed that he had sold his soul to the devil for powers and pleasures such as no man had ever known and then had been claimed forever by Satan. The story seems at first to have been a cautionary tale, a warning to devout Christians not to dabble in magic and the pursuit of pleasure. But the 16th century was an age when new religious and para-religious impulses were emerging, Witness the demonic elements in Bruegel and Dürer and the rise of the occult in Paracelsus. New discoveries were being made in science with Copernicus, Giordano Bruno, and Kepler. And classical humanism was a new stimulus to the imagination. The conjuring up of Helen of Troy was an early and intrinsic part of the Faust story. So, like many a myth, the Faust story grew and grew as it passed from mouth to mouth. German was the language of the earliest published version of the legend, the anonymous Faust book 
1587. But Christopher Marlowe was quick to adapt the theme for the English stage, and in many ways Marlowe remade it. His Dr. Faustus is damned to hellfire, as the German Faust had been, but not before he has been shown to be a truly tragic figure, a man of the Renaissance who goes so far in his desire for unlimited experience, in his lust for power, in his preference embodied in Helen of Troy for classical learning over sacred scripture, that it becomes impossible for him to repent, even when he sees Christ's blood stream in the firmament. In the century that followed Marlowe, Literary versions of the Faust story began to appear all over Europe. Goethe may have read some of them, but he probably came to know the legend first when he was a boy watching a puppet show. For Dr. Faust had by his time become, like Don Juan, a figure for popular entertainments in which they are dispatched to hell for their sins, but only after the audience had had its full of magic tricks and devilish pranks. Goethe did not neglect the rude comic potential in the Faust story. His mighty drama is enthusiastically filled with playfully low incidents and jargony verses. But ultimately, Goethe turned the story from a cautionary tale into a parable of modern man. His Faust seeks to find his place in a rapidly expanding and changing world. His experiences teach him new dimensions in the received wisdom of both Christianity and classical antiquity. In an 18th century fast turning into a 19th, Goethe began to see Faust as a figure for himself. For he was himself a Faustian man, bestriding the two ages of reason and romanticism. A few minutes now for Goethe. He has been called the last universal genius. He was interested in and wrote with astonishing insight about virtually everything. His writings fill 133 volumes in the Weimar edition. He went through a period of religious mysticism, dabbled in alchemy and the occult, practiced law, influenced politics, and wrote novels, plays, poems by the hundreds, essays, travel literature, even scientific treatises that made significant contributions to mineralogy, botany, optics, and anatomy. In his Faust, he used the symbols of medieval Christianity to meditate on his own life as a modern man devoted to progress in all human endeavors, but conscious, too, of the moral risks involved. Most importantly for our purposes here, Goethe was not ashamed to show, as he wrote, the evil that mingled with the good in his own nature. When he was a young man, first testing himself against the Faust myth, he was made painfully aware that he had, in his ambition, destroyed something beautiful, and it weighed on his conscience. In his early twenties, Goethe, in disguise, as was not uncommon for him on his escapades, seduced and abandoned a minister's daughter, Frederica Brion. She loved him with all her soul, but his ambition would not let him stay with her. When he had had his way with her, he said goodbye from his horse, shaking her hand without dismounting. Years later, he saw her again. She was still unwed and looked much the same. That was when I learned, he said, what it was to feel guilt. When he was still in his twenties, Goethe developed this experience, this story of innocence betrayed by a man who felt he had to experience everything in life, into a short work, the so-called Urfaust, discovered only after his death. Critics who complain that Gounod never comes to grips with the whole of Goethe should know that Gounod in his opera covers almost all of the ground Goethe did in this youthful work. Then, in his forties, Goethe expanded the Urfaust into part one of his mighty drama, and his moving account of the betrayal of the young girl became the best-known and best-loved part of the whole Faust myth. Goethe called the betrayed girl Gretchen. Gounod gave her the corresponding name in French, Marguerite. Gounod's next act 
is the famous scene in Marguerite's garden. It is the best thing he ever wrote, an inspired three quarters of an hour in which one beautifully crafted, luminously scored melody is followed by another and another in astonishing profusion. A scene in which the woodwinds, horns, and strings blend with a sensuousness unheard of in love duets until Wagner's Tristan. A scene in which characters tentatively sketched till now are beautifully delineated and contrasted. And a scene in which the drama builds with an inevitability that Berlioz, a greater composer than Gounod, but one whose own Faust had been a critical failure, was compelled to admire. As the curtains part on the garden scene, the orchestral strings whisper with a strange ominousness, like the wind through the trees. Young Siebel himself infatuated with Marguerite, appears briefly to sing a naive little song and lay a bouquet of flowers at her doorstep. Siebelle, sung by a light mezzo-soprano, is not in Goethe. He is an invention of Gounod and his librettists. Our Siebelle is Marta Angelici. But the flowers Siebel gathers in the garden wither when he touches them, as Mephisto had predicted would happen. The youth piously solves that problem with holy water from a font that stands before Marguerite's chaste dwelling, a moment that might have charmed bourgeois Parisians of Gounod's time, but simply enrages apostles of Goethe today. Faust, led by the devil to the enclosure, is so impressed by its innocence that he has momentary qualms about the impending seduction. He sings his famous Salut, Demeure, Chaste et Pure, a tenor aria with a violin obbligato wreathed around it and with a fearfully exposed high C. Then the devil replaces Siebel's humble bouquet with matter more attractive, a case of jewels. Marguerite comes through the gate, unaware that the others have been there, sits at her spinning wheel and starts to spin, singing a Gothic ballad, The King of Thule, a flavorsome French setting of one of the most famous of Goethe's German poems. Between the stanzas, she stops to wonder about the handsome young man she has just met at the fair. It is my favorite number in the score. ¶¶ 
Suddenly, Marguerite notices the jewel case, opens it, naively tries on its contents, and admires herself in a mirror Mephisto has thoughtfully placed inside. Her Gothic ballad is abandoned for a sparkling jewel song. It is often said that in this scene, with its lovely touches of characterization, Gounod created the species of soprano now known as lyric. Marguerite hastily takes off the jewels when her gossipy old neighbor, Martha, comes into the garden. Mephistopheles emerges from the foliage and, with some feelings of revulsion, pretends an amorous interest in the old beldam so that the youthful Faust can be alone with the innocent girl. The quartet that ensues as the two couples pass and repass through the shadows in the garden the hide-and-seek comedy alternating with the pulsating sexuality of it all, is operatic composition at its very best. Martha, the first voice we shall hear in this quartet, is sung by Solange Michel. The celebrated love duet of Faust and Marguerite follows. First, 
the tender Laisse-moi contempler ton visage. And then the ecstatic O Nuit d'Amour, in which her melody first accompanies his, and then his accompanies hers. But it is a love duet manipulated by the fiend in the shadows who now begins to show his sinister side. Suddenly, Marguerite, afraid of the passion she is feeling for the first time, pleads with Faust to leave, and he does so, asking only to see her the next day. But Mephistopheles forces him to stay and hear what she says at her window to the stars. And there she confesses her love to delicately conspiring woodwinds in what Berlioz rightly called the finest single moment in the score. Il m'aime. He loves me. Faust, aflame with passion, runs to the open window and kisses her. The curtains close discreetly, but the whole orchestra shivers as Mephistopheles bursts into sardonic laughter in the shadows. A hundred years ago, the redoubtable critic of the New York Times, W.J. Henderson, told in chagrin the fanciful tale of a visitor from another planet wandering eons in the future through the ruins of what was once Manhattan and asking what a certain noble edifice might once have been. Could it have been the city's Festspielhaus, its festival playhouse, as the theater is called in Wagner's Bayreuth? No, he is told. This was the famous Faustspielhaus, the house where they played Faust, the Metropolitan Opera. And indeed, Gounod's opera opened the old Met in 1883, and for generations there it seemed as if they played nothing else. But there have been many other Faustspielhäuser in the world. The Opera in Paris has given the work close to 3,000 times. At Covent Garden, it played every season from 1863 to 1911, and until World War II, it was a full hundred performances ahead of all the other works in the repertory there. 
In Budapest, it still tops the list of performance totals, as it has for a full century. Italians took it early to their hearts, and it was in Italian that our great-grandparents almost invariably heard it. But the Germans discovered it first, after France had shown little initial interest, and in Germany it was done so often that it had to be renamed Margareta to distinguish it from Goethe's play, which might also be in the repertory during the same season. Gunos Faust is overwhelmingly important in the history of operatic singing. It is impossible even to think of such great artists of the past as Patti, Melba, Ames, Nordica, the Dureskis, Planson, Chaliapin, Pinza, Caruso, Burling, and the singers we are hearing on this CD without thinking of Faust. Marcel Journet sang his legendary Mephistopheles more than a thousand times. No wonder that when I was a boy, everyone's idea of opera was of the devil in red tights. When Rudolf Bing heard Giuseppe de Stefano's high C Messa di Voce in Faust's aria Salut de Meur Chaste Pure, he said, I shall never, as long as I live, forget the beauty of that sound. Faust is an opera designed for singing by a composer who is a pretty stylish singer himself. Charles Gounod was also a painter of sufficient talent to have attracted the attention of the famous Jean-Auguste Ingres. When the young Gounod won the Prix de Rome and got support from the French government to spend a year in Rome studying music, Ingres, at the head of the school, exclaimed that Gounod ought to compete a second time and win a second year in Rome, painting. The young Gounod was also, as Mendelssohn's sister remarked when she met him in Rome, passionately enthusiastic about German Romanticism. But the great passion of the young Gounod's life was religion, a fervent Catholicism nurtured in Rome by Sunday masses at the Sistine Chapel, listening to Palestrina, gazing on Michelangelo's frescoes, and wondering whether the priesthood might be his real vocation. At Notre Dame in Paris, he was encouraged by the great Dominican preacher Lacordaire to devote his talents to winning hearts and minds for the church if he could not himself become a priest. His subsequent composing veered between the sacred, the St. Cecilia Mass, and an Ave Maria floated over a Bach prelude, and the profane, a series of rather voluptuous operas, most of which, inevitably it seemed, failed. But despite discouragement and even some temporary derangement, everything came together for him in mid-career in Faust, which provided the opportunity to put his best talents to work, his gift for melody, his sensitivity to the nuances of the French language, his love of German Romanticism, and his uncanny ability to paint in music. The Gretchen story also enabled him almost ideally to express what I have called the two sides of his nature. The passionately sexual, he was later nearly destroyed by a liaison with a devious English woman, and the devoutly religious, he ended his life after composing a successful Romeo and Juliet, writing sacred music, the oratorio Mors et Vita, and, like his idol Mozart, an unfinished Requiem. The last act of Gounod's Faust can be staged in as few as two or as many as five scenes, depending on the resources of the opera house presenting it. First, we get a little scene in which Marguerite now with child and abandoned by Faust, is mocked by the village girls outside her window and sings a desperate spinning song based on Goethe and then is comforted by the faithful Siebel. Then there is the church scene in which Marguerite comes repentant to pray, hears only the strains of the threatening Dies Irae and falls into a faint when Mephistopheles rises from a tomb to terrorize her. Then there is a scene in the village square where Valentin and his comrades return from the wars to sing the show-stopping soldier's chorus. Valentin is shocked when he learns from Siebel that his sister has lost her innocence and is enraged when Mephistopheles sings a mocking serenade beneath her window.
The soldier brother challenges the now repentant Faust to a duel. Mephisto directs the fatal thrust. Faust flees, and while the villagers watch in horror, Valentin dies, cursing his sister, whose mind gives way under the strain. Gounod twists her once radiant, he loves me, to this broken, repeated fragment. Then there is a scene that disrupts the drama and musically falls below the high standard of the rest. Loosely based on Goethe, it was added ten years after the premiere at the Little Théâtre Lyrique because the mighty Paris Opéra, which had previously closed its doors to Gounod's opera, now wanted to do it. And, as Wagner and Verdi learned to their dismay, the opera always insisted on a grand ballet in its productions. So, in some stagings, Mephisto at this point takes Faust to a witch's Sabbath and conjures up for him Helen of Troy and other women of antiquity. In the midst of the debauched revels, Faust seems to see Marguerite with a thin line of blood encircling her neck. He cries out in horror and demands to be taken to her. The ballet music for this scene was once very popular on the concert circuit. But in its elaborate vulgarity, it seems to me totally wrong for the rest of the delicately wrought score. And I rather suspect that it is not by Gounod at all, but by Leo de Libes, the composer of Lachmé, whose name plainly appears on an edition preserved in the archives of the Opéra. It might, on the other hand, have been only orchestrated by de Libes and actually have been written by the resourceful Camille Saint-Saëns, who was approached by the opera to write a ballet for Faust when Gounod, going through one of his religious phases, refused to do so. Today, the ballet is omitted in most productions. On recordings, when it is included at all, it is usually relegated to an appendix. The last scene of the opera opens with an ominous drum roll. Faust comes to Marguerite's prison cell. She has been sentenced to death for killing in her madness the child she has borne to him. He hopes desperately to rescue her while there is still time, but she seems not to sense any danger, lost as she is in memories of meeting him at the fair and loving him in the garden. But when Mephistopheles appears to say he has the horses ready for the escape, she suddenly recognizes the demon for what he is and prays to the angels to take her soul to heaven. The trio that follows is one of the most effective pieces ever written for the stage. Three times we hear Marguerite's prayer, each time a tone higher than the last, soaring over the voices of Faust and the devil.
Again, we hear the drum roll of the executioner, and Marguerite, thrusting Faust away from her, falls lifeless to the ground. As in Goethe, Mephistopheles shouts, Condemned! But voices from above contradict him and sing, Saved! The opera ends with a heaven-sent resurrection chorus punctuated by trumpet blasts on earth. Charles Gounod, in his century, was an artist ready to learn from the last, the love story. And if he didn't attempt the whole arching span of Goethe's massive drama, if even in the love story he took Goethe's symbolic happenings more literally than Goethe intended, he did nonetheless capture in his beautifully wrought score much of Goethe's unequaled tenderness and pathos. And for that, this opera lover is truly grateful. That was the late Father Owen Lee sharing the history of Gounod's Faust. Though we have lost a brilliant friend of the opera, we are forever grateful for all of Father Lee's contributions to opera education and his long-time collaboration with the Metropolitan Opera Guild. To continue your study of Faust, be sure to tune in to the Metropolitan Opera's Saturday matinee broadcast this Saturday, January 30th at 1 p.m. The Met will present an archival performance of Faust from 2011, featuring Marina Pokolovskaya, Jonas Kaufmann, and René Papa, conducted by music director Maestro Yannick Nezet-Séguin. We'll be back with you in two weeks for the first two lectures in our opera in the Soviet era. Until then, I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.